Hello and welcome to the Culture Mirrors podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to have some more movie news, reviews, discuss some of the, the soundtracks of the week. A classic movie is going to be in there, as well as some of the great returning shows. And uh, so it's going to be an action-packed show, but we're going to kick it off with the BAFTA talk. Sean, you sat through the entire ceremony. Um, I had other things to do. so um, I Oh, thanks. Well, is, that, is that an in-joke? <laughs> more of an insult. But yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, but uh, so I obviously caught up on the best bit and found out exactly what was going on. So, um, what was your thoughts on the show? Oh, so you coasted through? So did you, you just looked online afterwards, did you, and just found out? I looked online and read that Stephen Fry's quit Twitter. Yes, he had. Yeah, for calling costume designer Jenny Bevan a bag lady. Uh, apparently, she didn't take any offence at it, but loads of people did. So, does she <laughs> does she live in a van? Uh, no, she doesn't. No, but they did cut to Maggie Smith uh, on one of his jokes, and her reaction was quite funny. I can't remember what joke it was, but anyway, it's Which, the Baftas. Well, yeah, it's the Baftas. So I think the the main thing we can take from the Baftas is that it is since it's been moved pre Oscars, it is almost a half prediction, really. Yeah, from, from what's going to happen when the Academy get their hands and filthy paws all over people. Well, yeah, and in a way, it's seen as a bad thing because a lot of people seem to think now that the Baftas have lost their edge because they're seen as the precursor to the Oscars. And I think actually this year was probably the most predictable Bafta ceremony in a very long time, as expected. The Revenant got Best Film, uh, Best Director for Alejandro G. Iñárritu, despite not being the best film of the year, or exactly. indeed the best directed film. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio got Best actor for The Revenant as well which was very very predictable I wanted to see that going to Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs personally speaking I wanted to see it going to Matt Damon for The Martian Matt Damon yeah you can't just pigeonhole him in no, a it's joke just, that came from Team American 2006 it's like, it's like 2004 actually ah. it's, like, <laughs> it's like a Pavlov's dog reaction you ring that bell and I'll just make that noise so I can't help it for any potential girlfriends that Sean may have in the future, please do know that uh, if you just say the word Matt Damon, it will soon be followed by... Matt Damon! Just bear that if in mind. If any potential girlfriends don't find that funny, then there's no chance of a future with me. So just putting that out there. <laughs> Less than three minutes in and you're already whoring yourself. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's becoming a tendency now, isn't it? Anyway, should we get back on track? I think we probably should. <laughs> uh, so what, what were we happy about? What were we unhappy about, really? Idris Elba did not get uh, supporting actor for Beasts of No Nation, which was shameful. That was bad. Yeah, that was pretty bad. I mean, things I was happy about. Brie Larson for Room. Yes. I was very happy about that. Um, obviously, I absolutely adored Room. Um, it's stuck with me and I've gone to see it again since and it's how Jacob Tremblay's not been nominated is, it just baffles me yeah that is bad yeah uh, I was really unhappy that Alicia Vikander didn't get Best Supporting Actress for Ex Machina but Kate Winslet did for Steve Jobs and Kate Winslet was great in Steve Jobs as one of the very few sympathetic characters and you know she basically was the moral spine of that film but Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina was extraordinary yeah, well, she was the basis of the story. Yes. She was the, the main focus. And the fact she had to play the the concept of being a robot at the same time as, is she human, is she not? Yeah. What what constitutes human, what isn't? I, I thought she was really, really strong in that film. Therefore, may well have gotten a nomination, but there we go. Yeah, I thought far more intriguing performance than Kate Winslet. Great, though, Kate Winslet was. I'm not arguing with that. Yeah, and so... She was doing an odd accent. Yeah, which seems to get more pronounced as the film went on, as I mentioned in our review of it last year, which mm. is peculiar. Yeah, um, apparently it was based on the 
the actual woman herself, but Joanna herself. But, um, yeah. yeah At least it wasn't as bad as her accent in the room where she was basically like, all right, you underage boy, you'll come over here and you'll have sex with me. That was basically what she sounded like in Reader, which was, and she got an Oscar for that. So you look horrified. Yeah, sorry, I was just trying to... <laughs> Have you not seen the reader? Well, you said the room, so I'm really <laughs> confused. The reader. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, usual, very, very predictable ceremony. Uh, I was very happy that Ennio Morricone got it for the Hateful Eight soundtrack. That was brilliant, much deserved. But then you expect me to say that. Uh, yeah, and um, I'm not actually on the subject of Idris Elba losing. Mark Rylance did get the best supporting actor for Bridge of Spies, which was deserved uh, the, that was a great performance yeah and you know when asked um, how he felt about it and if he was happy about his award Mark Rylance obviously turned around and said would it help boom <laughs> it's a joke for the people that have seen the film <laughs> yeah oh yeah hey, one person laughing it's not me at least that person clearly has a sense of humor <laughs> uh, yes yeah, so you know it was it was, an, it was an okay evening, it was fine, and clearly the best thing about it was Rebel Wilson's very, very cutting um, Best Supporting Actor speech in which she made gags about both um, the Danish girl and also the diversity row, which both of which were very funny. Well, she is now your best friend. So. She is. I have interviewed her, and she has the same surname as me, and she is therefore brilliant. That's all it takes. Exactly. That's all it takes. <laughs> So moving away from uh, award ceremonies and the uh, arbitrary nature of trying to compare art with each other, um, we're going to now move to some of the reviews. Um, Sean has sat through a lot of the dross. Um, I obviously haven't. So um, what was your thought on Pride, Prejudice and Zombies? Right, okay, yeah. Um, let's yeah start on a relatively low note, shall we? Um, as you said, Dross. Things can only get better. Yeah, yeah, they really can. Uh, so this is the adaptation of the Seth Graham Smith mashup novel. Um, mashups seem to be a real trend about four or five years ago, not so much anymore. But as I understand, this film has been in development hell for quite a long time. And I presume that's the reason why it's staggering onto the screen now, long after, you know, people have stopped being interested in this sort of stuff. So was this like a rom com but a book? Uh, well, yeah, the, the basic gist of it is that it's Pride and Prejudice interspersed with modern, with contemporary text referring to the zombie apocalypse, as I understand it. I've not read it, but I know people who have read it. And basically you get massive sections of it, just play out as you would expect with, you know, Elizabeth Bennett, Mark Darcy and so on. And then every so often you'll get a bit of head smashing action. It doesn't sound like a particularly witty idea. I mean, it's a bit of an audacious one, but it doesn't sound particularly clever. It sounds like the sort of thing that would wear out its welcome quite quickly. Um, and unfortunately, this has now spilled over into the movie as well, which is directed, uh, written and directed by Burr Steers. Uh, so the idea is that it rewrites the Pride and Prejudice that we know. So obviously, you know, period drama set in England. Uh, you have the Bennett sisters, you have all the usual characters, you have Mr. Darcy, Mr. Bingley, Mr. Collins, and so on, except that this takes place in a, an, an England which has been overrun by the Black Plague, which means that England's now overrun by zombies, flesh-eating zombies. London is now walled off. Um, it's been it's, uh, secured. There's only one bridge over the canal that allows access in and out um, there was actually a bit of flummoxing about that I, I was getting very confused I don't think the film sets it up very well in terms of the geography of it I was like hang on so is London walled off is there another wall surrounding London I was really confused by that and I was never able to sort of make that up in my mind but anyway that's the least of the movie's problems 
So what is the actual main story arc for those that may not already know? Well, the main story arc is that it's Pride and Prejudice with zombies. I don't. You don't know. You don't know Pride and Prejudice. Nope. Okay. Well, the the, the idea is in Pride and Prejudice, you had the, the the Bennett sisters were looking for matrimonial prospects. They're looking for a, a suitable husband. They're all dealing with all their various, you know, issues. Um, lady things la- lady things yeah yeah exactly in that very Austin way and at, at the central conceit of it is that Elizabeth Bennet is very feisty Elizabeth Bennet played by Lily James from Cinderella in this I should say is very feisty and very headstrong and she butts heads with Mark Darcy played by Sam Riley here from Control is that Colin Firth uh, yeah, that would have been Colin Firth's character in, yeah, in, in the 1995 BBC version. So that centrally is is the nub of the story. But in this, they're not so much looking for husbands as they are, they've been trained in the arts of, of warfare and they, they know how to wield swords and wield blades and they basically spend more time fending off the zombie hordes than they do looking for potential husbands. You're smirking. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm, thinking, would it have made a lot more sense for the whoever wrote the book and whoever wrote the film to just pick something completely different and not use the name of Pride Prejudice. Well, yeah, I, I imagine there there's probably a kernel of an idea in there about, you know, subverting period romance with a bit of splattery gore. And then the, 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 the somewhat schizophrenic nature of the idea itself, the fact that you have a, a, a classic literary source um, sitting alongside something more modern that problem carries over into the movie because the movie doesn't serve either master. The movie, it, it won't work for Pride and Prejudice fans because it's not completely a Pride and Prejudice film and it won't work for zombie fans because they'll think, well, hang on, what's, why, is, why is the movie also being very, very faithful to the Pride and Prejudice story and all its very genteel finery when I'm not interested in that? You know, it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I, I couldn't work out what, what higher purpose the movie was there to serve and ultimately, ironically enough, it's, it's brain dead. It's lifeless. It, it you know it's it shuffles forwards and I I think it's a combination of an idea that's not very witty and direction that's very very heavy handed and it doesn't seem to be able to articulate this idea in any particularly profound way. What I loved was that pre this film coming out, you saw a lot of uh, posters and ads on buses and things like that. Since it's come out, nothing. Yeah, that's very telling. It, it, it's flopped, and I think it's a shame because I think the cast are really, really giving it their all. I think the cast are great. I mean, it's an all-star cast: Lily James, Sam Riley, Charles Dance, Lena Headey from uh, Game of Thrones. All of these actors, and they're clearly they they've got that slightly heightened, mannered body language that you would expect from a Jane Austen. Um, story ad- adaptation and yet the zombie stuff just doesn't integrate well with it at all it's it's literally like every every time they have a conversation interspersed with which is the occasional reference to a zombie the movie will stop and somebody will pull out a sword or a gun and they'll they'll destroy the, the flesh-eating ones then it will just go back to being pride and prejudice again it, it just doesn't work it's completely so moving on to slightly more positive pastures face. possibly um, yeah, um, very, what were your thoughts of Zoolander or Zoolander number two or again? 200 Lander previous. or whatever the and title zombies. is? Zoolander II, as he says on the teaser trailer. The, the teaser trailer, I have to say, which is a lot funnier than the film itself. So this is probably not going to go that well. Oh. <laughs> but I have to say, I didn't hate Zoolander 2 as much as the vast majority of critics have. It's, it's done really badly at the box office. It's had terrible reviews. Didn't uh, the first one... Yeah, well, it did. Yeah, the fir- the first one famously became a cult hit, 
uh, after it was released in the cinemas because I think the first one suffered because it was released very close to 9/11. I think that was in the it was in the release window of that, mm. but it subsequently um, w- was was embraced uh, as a very very funny comedy. You're shaking your head. You're completely wrong about this because, as we know, you have no sense of humour and you don't find Zoolander funny. Well, there's several parts of that that I'm not going to pick apart. <laughs> However, but, I'm, Zoolander's not funny. Yeah, right. We disagree. We disagree. I think Zoolander is, is hilarious. I'm not the biggest fan of Ben Stiller in the world, but, you know, fashion, spoof, blue steel, pouting, him and Omelson, very, very, I, I think it's it's really, really funny. whole host of cameos, David Bowie and so on. And I think it gets funnier the more I watch it. But it's an interesting thing that Zoolander wasn't embraced, as we've already said, when it initially came out and there is this tendency now i think with movies that you'll get a big delay in uh, in between a movie and its sequel and i saw something um i can't remember what it was referring to lately it was referring to weaponized nostalgia which i think is a brilliant brilliant description in that you know you, th- you it's almost like people think they can create nostalgia for something they think that enough space has gone past that that, that someone can actually bottle it and they can actually inject that essence into a sequel which doesn't happen it didn't happen with anchorman 2 and fa- it hasn't really happened with with zoolander 2 although i don't think it's as bad as everyone says so the idea is picks up several years after the events of the first one uh, derek zoolander once again played by ben stiller yeah wasn't he an aging model in the first one no not so much not so much like aging he was approaching in the, the end of his lifespan well sort of in, and in then the, owen wilson's um well i think in the, in the first one they were more sort of like they were more rivals um in obviously in in the um first one he was brainwashed into yeah, executing the, the prime minister of malaysia i think it was uh, this one does actually pick up several years later where you know zoolander and hansel are no longer relevant anymore zoolander is living in a sort of snowbound cabin somewhere hansel is out in what looks like egypt but i think it actually turns out to be the desert outside malibu which was actually a joke that made me laugh out loud it's a visual joke you have to see it to really understand it my words can't do it justice then it's a great thing you've described it for us on the podcast <laughs> yeah yeah and i've over explained the joke which is what i usually do um they are they are um you know they are discovered both discovered by billy zane who reprises his cameo from the the first movie billy zane will make your film 20 percent better he will yeah there you go so there's 20 percent of a reason to like this film already so yeah <laughs> and um they are so reluctantly drawn back into the fold because somebody is going um around around the world executing a various celebrities beginning with justin bieber and before each of these people before each of these celebrities are dying they are pulling a certain face spoiler no this this film begins with with justin bieber being popped okay that makes your film 20 percent better also yeah yeah exactly so we're on 40 percent now so we're actually doing pretty well so um, we're only about 10 minutes in. <laughs> exactly um although i have to think one of the problems with the movie making jokes about justin bieber mm, very six years ago but anyway uh, i'll get on to that uh, and so celebrities around the world are dying and before they're dying they're pulling a signature Zoolander face which of course means Interpol headed up by Penelope Cruz have asked you know have got Zoolander out of retirement they've got him back together with Hansel to try and crack this mysterious sort of conspiracy that seems to extend all the way up to um, Kristen Wiig as this absolutely grotesque fashionista with this hideously stretched face and vowel mangling you know vocal turns well uh, she was clearly the best thing in anchorman 2 
Yes. How did she stack up in that? I, I actually thought she was very, very funny in this. She plays Alexania, and she looks little like this all the way through it like that, and you're hanging your head in shame already. See, I know how you'd react when she turns up on screen. I thought she was very funny. I'm uh, sure she was funny. It's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's more your yeah. impression. <laughs> yeah, that's what she sounds like. And and all, there's all this all this various stuff going on, so they've got to sort of bust open this conspiracy. At the same time, Zoolander has been estranged from his son, and he has to reconcile with him. They go to Italy at one point. They have to reconcile. He has to reconcile with his son. There's a whole running gag going on in the background about how Hansel has this collect- collective of people um, who he seems to, who seems to tag around with him for the purposes of an orgy. Um, that joke doesn't really take off. One of them is Kiefer Sutherland um, doing his Jack Bauer voice. Is, it, is that going to be another twenty percent decency added onto it? Well, Jack Bauer and Kiefer Sutherland have their place. Yeah. In comedy. Not Not, so much much in this, no. Um, And actually, one of the big problems with the movie is, I mentioned this earlier, that the first Zoolander felt like it was setting a trend. The first Zoolander felt very anarchic and very strange in that it it did. You're shaking your head. It was was taking really ribald and I thought actually really quite brilliant pot shots at the fashion industry. And I thought that was setting a trend. This feels like it's catching up to trends that have already been set. It feels curiously behind the times. And I mentioned the the Justin Bieber gag. There are also jokes about Instagram, Susan Boyle, things like that. I think, hmm. This is feeling very, very old hat. It doesn't feel as fresh and as sparky as it, as it did before. And one of the, also one of the big problems of the movie is there is a lot more plot in this one. There's a lot more stuff going on. And it's almost like Ben Stiller as a director. In order to justify this film's existence, he's felt the need to inject a lot more money and a lot more just sort of pizzazz into what's going on. So there are more locations, there are more explosions. There's generally just more plot machinations. And I think, you know what? The first Zoolander was brilliant just by virtue of its fantastic physical gags like when I know you disagree with me on this when David Bowie turns up to judge the catwalk competition and then they just walk down the catwalk pulling those stupid poses which makes me laugh my head off even now it's still not a joke but it's funny it doesn't have to but be it's, a, it's not a joke it's physical comedy it's it's therefore it's funny that's like saying if they just go to the end of the the walkway and just sit down and a stupid face That's but they don't sit down. They, they, they contort their bodies and they do everything and it's really really funny this one doesn't have that innocence or that zaniness to it there's a lot more going on but it's a lot patchier and it feels like it's straining for laughs now i have to say i i didn't hate it i thought there were enough laughs in the first half of the movie to make it a passable watch there's a very very good joke where zoolander pulls out a tiny little mobile phone, um, obviously harkening back to when it looked like technology was going smaller, and then someone says to him, "Oh yeah, I, I, I can, I can take a phone call on my device and holds up an iPad, which shows our changing relationship with technology." I thought that was a very, very good gag. Well, that was the phone he had in the first one. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. so, so, it's, so there, there are very, very, there are the occasional cutting little moments like that in it. Again, a whole the whole host of cameos: Justin Bieber, Anna Don't Wintour. spoil the cameos. No, no, they, they, there's loads of people. In it. Benedict Cumberbatch was in the trailer, and in fact, it's you know he's in it for all of a minute. He looked a lot like Julian Assange in the trailer. Did he? Mm. But I hope Julian Assange doesn't hear you say that. What's he going to do? <laughs> Hack the website and take well, it down? Hey, we um, yeah. So you know what? It's it's okay it's not it's nowhere near the level of the first one i didn't hate it it goes massively downhill in the second half when will ferrell as mugatu turns up again mugatu being the baddie from the um the first film um yeah so 
and and I have to say the laughter in the cinema where I saw it was very very sporadic and I seemed to be one of the very few people who was chuckling at least consistently through the first half and the name of the film again 200 Lander or Zoolander number two I'll, do you know what I like the idea of it being Zoolander number two that's a really really good joke is it to, yeah to to mock Chanel in that way like I get yes, it yes yeah yeah that that is so, probably more biting than anything that you've said is in the film see I didn't even pick up on that until you said it I didn't even think that they were doing it in that way but that's actually a really good point yeah so clearly my level of comedy is far higher than yours thank you very much <laughs> so we've had two slight misses already um why don't you tell us about Bone Tomahawk ah now we're getting into the good stuff you say that Dad's army's coming. I'm not going to preempt that with you. I'm not, yeah, yeah. Much you try and try and get me to do it. I'm not going to preempt that one. Uh, this is a real cracker, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, it's the um, it's debut directorial feature from S. Craig Zala, who is actually a novelist turned filmmaker. Um, and you do get a sense watching Bone Tomahawk in the in the luxuriant nature of the dialogue that he is a novelist at heart. That he really he, he really likes dialogue as well as physical action as well. But we'll get onto that. So it's a horror western, which is you know, relative rarity uh, in in the annals of of cinema. Because you think that both horrors and westerns have been around since the inception of of cinema. But trying to think of films that have combined the two, I mean, there are occasional gems. There's Dust Devil, which was directed by Richard Stanley from the early nineties. But I don't know. Can you think of any like that, that have done that genre mashup? No, I'm struggling to think. Um, yeah, the only sort of Western mashups that are coming to mind are things like Westworld and Blues yeah. and Saddles. And then I suppose you've got raw recently. You've got something like Cowboys and Aliens, which was obviously sci-fi and Western, which mm. didn't work at all. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really bad. Um, so, so this is so it, it's not. It's it's unique to an extent, Bone Tomahawk, but it's it, it, really the reason why it works is because it's a genuine, it's a it's a very well made movie for the most part. It's, it's a cracker. So you have um, at the start of the movie, uh, Kurt Russell is a small town sheriff who is contending with the disappearance of three people from the local jail cell. One of whom is the local uh, medicine woman. She's the local doctor. Um, one of whom is his deputy, the other is the jail's uh, newest incumbent. They've all disappeared from the jail cell, and the only evidence to hint at what what might have happened is an arrow that's embedded in the wall. And he um, speaks to a local guide who who it, it looks very ashen faced upon seeing the arrow and said, "Right, you might suspect that the that the people who've done this are Native Americans. They're not actually Native Americans. They barely qualify as that. They are actually a step below. Are they zombies? They're not zombies. Oh. No, thank goodness. <laughs> it's not Bone Tomahawk and zombies. Thankfully, um, I won't spoil what the threat is because what one of the brilliant things that Zala does as director, he keeps the threat off screen for actually quite a long time. Is it Billy Zane? It's not Billy Zane, Damn. no, and and it's not it's not Ben Stiller doing his blue steel face either, although no doubt you'd probably see that as a as a threat, wouldn't you? You'd probably run a million miles away from that. No, I just turn it over. <laughs> um, so uh, Kurt Russell is informed that basically they've been kidnapped by some by someone and something truly horrendous, and that they've got no hope in hell of rescuing these people. He then assembles a posse of people comprising Richard Jenkins as the elderly second part. Richard Jenkins, genuinely unrecognisable. Richard Jenkins from A Cabin in the Woods. Um, great actor. I, I genuinely had to, I was like, it was about two minutes went by before I was like, oh, that's, that's him, because the makeup is really well done and the physical performance is really good. Uh, you also have 
Patrick Wilson as the crippled husband of the woman who's gone missing. And also, very intriguingly, you have Matthew Fox from Lost as the very dapper gunslinger who is very boastful about how many uh, Indians he has killed. And they all go and ride off into the desert to go and confront this seemingly horrifying thing and to go and get these people back. And, of course, what they find is genuinely terrifying but the really interesting thing about the movie is how quiet and how leisurely it is i mean really it's it's two hours and ten minutes long and it really does take its time is kurt russell as beautifully mustached well i think the key thing his facial foliage in this looks very much like what he had in um hateful eight so it's a beautiful mustache it is his beautiful mustache and beard combination I, i i would assume that i think this one might have filmed around the same time as the hateful eight which probably would account for the the facial hair um, but it's a completely different sort of performance in this because in this he's very morally courageous, he's very upstanding, he's the sort of person who you would rally behind. Whereas obviously in Hateful Eight he was not that sort of character at all. Hateful by name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Zala as a director really takes his time in getting you accustomed to these characters. It's it's a horse opera, you know. They go out into the desert. You spend an awful lot of time with them as they are in the saddle, as they are sleeping in the sagebrush. A horse opera. It's a horse opera. Yeah. Have you not heard that phrase before? No. Can it's you explain? not. It's not an opera where horses sing. Oh shit. It's not. Is it like War Horse, where they're all puppets? No, it's not like that. Oh. And it's not a Vita with horses either, because I knew you like a Vita. Well. Anything with Don't Cry For Me Argentina is going to be better. Well, yeah, I, I like Puss in Boots and that. Uh, oh, sorry, did that, yeah. I know you don't like me ribbing Antonio Banderas. Leave his voice alone. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a horse opera, you know, it, it's 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 a celeb- it's, it's a Western. It's a celebration of those Western conventions. You know, they go out into the desert. The cinematography is beautiful. There's a lovely attention to detail just in the way that you hear the spurs jingling and the saddle leather creaking. I'm a sucker for Westerns. I love Westerns in both literature and movies. So this i loved all of that luxuriant uh, detail in it and you really do spend the vast majority of the movie at, it, it is a western you know the horror is really kept off screen probably until i would say the last 30 to 40 minutes and the issue for me with the movie is when when the horror element turns up and it is genuinely terrifying and there is one moment of gore in which i was genuinely taken aback by how nasty it is every review has cited this um i thought that you know when it was when it was being a western uh with these you know really interesting really intriguing characters it was great when it sort of butted heads with this other genre it didn't seem to integrate it quite so well and i i could have done with make the horror aspect maybe being a bit more developed than it was as it stands i don't think the genre i don't think the genre blend is probably quite as smooth as it could be um, but I'm not denying the film's ambition and I'm not denying that for the most part I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think the performance is terrific. Um, Kurt Russell, uh, Patrick Wilson and Richard Jenkins are fantastic. The real standout, unbelievably, is Matthew Fox. He's really, really good. He who's demonstrated over many, many years on an island that he can act very, very well. But he's not demonstrated it with any of the film roles that he's done since. So I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed his performance in this. Uh, um, he, he looks every inch the gunslinger and I yeah I was really really impressed with it I think it's it's probably destined you know, we mentioned earlier what the, the um, movie studios are attempting to aggressively turn sequels into cult hits when things become cults by accident and I think this is destined to be a cult because it is so unexpected it's genuinely come from nowhere it's made on like a two million dollar budget 1.8 million dollar budget actually so it's made for peanuts 
and it looks amazing and i don't think anybody quite expected this sort of genre blend in a movie recently obviously there have been a lot of revisionist westerns lately but this is this still stands out so i think this is unlike zoolander 2 this is destined to become a cult hit because of how unusual it is and the name of the film again bone tomahawk excellent definitely one to seek out um so we half trailed it just before that review of, of bone tomahawk um there has been a big screen remake of the classic much loved especially on this podcast uh TV sitcom of Dad's Army. Sean has gone to see this. What were your thoughts? You know what? I quite liked it. I I, I quite enjoyed it. And much like Zoolander, it's been blasted by the critics, although it's actually done very well at the UK box office, presumably because those who grew up with the TV series were curious to go and see it in the cinema. It's probably just for that reason that it's done well financially, at least in its first weekend. Now, I, I, I have to say I liked it a lot more uh, than I was expecting to. So, Warmington on Sea, Home Guard, uh, headed up as ever by uh, Captain Mannering, played by Toby Jones, and Sergeant Wilson, played by Bill Nye. Um, That's a great piece of casting, by the way. It Believe me, all of the casting, and the reason why this film works at all is because of the casting. It's great. It's really, really good. Uh, the reason why it doesn't work is the way that it attempts to graft more story onto the Dad's Army formula. Let's face it, Dad's Army was a 1970s sitcom that was appealing precisely because it was a low-budget British sitcom and there wasn't plots in it. Yeah, the, the best thing about it was they were stood in a church hall, there was the same five people in each ep- episode and they created their own stories and conflicts between each other yes. and they were still going to stop Adolf Hitler regardless of what whatever they had to do they were going to do it yeah it was that quintessential sort of slightly ramshackle sense of britishness it didn't it wasn't glossy or sophisticated anyway but the cast between the the the, the chemistry between the cast was obviously magical that's why it worked um of course in order to justify the existence of a big screen version uh it, it they have to they have to throw it more out there they have to create more stuff going on which is a problem so the the, the central gist is that Mannering is informed that a Nazi spy has wormed their way into the, the seaside town of, of Warmington on scene he has to assemble you know, his home guard you know Private Godfrey Corporal Jones and, and so on they all have to band together to try and figure out who this Nazi spy is and of course they're all completely bumbling and useless and you know but will they get their man what do you think I have my thoughts, and I'm not. <laughs> You're not going to say. I'm not going to say them. Whilst <laughs> yeah. I will check something with you um, later after we finish recording that. Yeah, and uh, you know the the whole the whole notion of you know blowing Dad's army up onto the big screen is very very difficult because the 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 appeal of the movie is rooted in the small screen, not the big. Although of course there famously was a Dad's army movie back in the 70s, which people don't seem to remember very much nowadays, probably because it wasn't very good. Yeah, probably for the best. Yeah. Um, so there is that tension between okay, what audience is this being aimed at? And I think the movie doesn't ever quite reconcile that because those who are old enough to remember the TV series will most likely want to cherish that memory of watching it on the TV. They won't want they won't want to see somebody you know, crucifying the idea on the big screen. And yet, on the other hand, younger viewers who might be unaware of Dad's Army might might possibly stumble into this thinking, well, what on earth is all that about? What am I meant to be taking away from this? So it doesn't it doesn't know what audience it wants to go for, which is a big problem. There's far too much plot, which is a you know, contravenes exactly the appeal of the the T V series. The reason why it works is because the 
all of the cast members are brilliantly chosen um and i think that they really pull the movie up by its bootstraps and they do all of the heavy lifting even when the direction and the scripting are very very flat-footed it's the efforts of the ensemble and their chemistry together and it's the scenes in which they are just you know they might be standing around in a field or as you say a church or a town hall and they are just they are arguing with each other and they are just doing that slightly nonsensical thing that you remember from the tv series it gets that brilliantly and i think um full credit to toby jones who's a terrific actor anyway I, I can't quite say i've seen him do a performance as broadly comic as this before although i think he has done comedy roles in the past um but there are some beautiful moments of physical comedy in this there's a scene in which um well famously his wife steps uh, mannering's wife steps out of the shadows in this played by um felicity monsky from alan partridge and there's a scene in which he is um he has a, he has a pole strapped to to his back and his arms are sort of suspended on either side and then um he gets a, a phone call from the top brass and he's still got this pole sort of attached to him and he has to negotiate his way into a a, a side room while whilst this thing is attached to him and he has to try and re- reach down and pick up the phone whilst trying to avoid like knocking things over and it's and it's a beautiful bit of priceless physical comedy that you, you could sort of imagine happening in the tv series and i think what toby jones does as with as with most of the cast actually i think he walks that line between honoring the actors who played the original characters and doing their own versions of it um and he look he looks like arthur lowe in certain scenes as well he really does look like him especially when he's got the, the hat on and I think that you know Tom Courtney, Michael Gambon, Bill Nye, Blake Harrison—they are—they are brilliant. They are all really, really. Good. Bill Patterson's in it as well. Um, just a really, a really well-chosen cast, and you can quite clearly see that they enjoyed acting in this together, and that they respect the source of the TV series. But I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I'm going to inject a note of controversy as well. I didn't grow up watching Dad's Army. I'm aware of it. I did. Yeah. I'm aware of it. I have a respect for it. I was a Fawlty Towers person. I wasn't a Dad's Army person. I don't see why there's a distinction. Well, no, it's just that I I happened to watch Fawlty Towers and I didn't really watch Dad's Army. And I'm not sure whether that helped me feel more sympathetic towards the film because I know that there is that distance between me and the TV series. Maybe if I'd felt close to the TV series, I might have had a very different reaction to this. Possibly. In all likelihood, I probably would have done. I really wish I'd have gone had the time to be able to go and see it now because mm. um, obviously as a, a someone that grew up with the sitcom it would have been uh, very nice to, to try and play that reaction off yeah. each other and if we were, if it was a Faulty Towers movie that we were talking about here in which somebody was attempting to play Basil Faulty was attempting to do a John Cleese impersonation I'd probably be much more on edge and much more like oh hang on a minute you know you're on very dangerous ground here um, and there, are, there are various aspects of Dad's Army that don't work Catherine Zeta-Jones turns up as the very you know glamorous new arrival in in town and you know she's clearly been put in there to try and sell it to the hollywood market this sort of works and it sort of doesn't but you know the bits that do work are where it gets that sense of you know classic bumbling britishness and it's not just the main cast either i mean you have a whole host of supporting you have mark gatiss sarah lancashire alison steadman it's a who's who of, of brits and frankly i could re- watch them read from the telephone book and it would probably be charming well, I mean, that's what you're saying about the the cast being 
doing the heavy lifting when you've got that cast they kind of have to yeah well yeah I, I think that it's instinctive in them all of the actors are genuinely great and I think that you know they take it on themselves to really care for these characters and to again do that physical and verbal dexterity that's absolutely necessary in this so um, not a great film but I liked it more than most excellent and the name of the film again Dad's Army excellent so um, I think uh, those that are still listening now at the moment will probably have heard uh, Sean's voice enough. So we're going to talk about a film. What are uh, you trying to say? Well. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Trumbo, um, something that I know you have seen as well. Yes, but I'm taking a back seat. Uh, you, well, you kind of have to at some point. <laughs> so um, directed by, by Jay Roach, um, which may come as a surprise for anyone that has seen it or is familiar with the name. Um, he who directed Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery and Meet the Parents and Meet the Fockers. But he has done he has done political TV films for like Game Change with Julianne Moore. Yes. But Sarah Palin, just want to get that in there. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, it's, in my head, it's sort of a similar thing to Adam McKay. Mm. He's got the comedy background, now he's moving into a... Um, Dramatic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this tells the story of Dalton Trumbo. The, he was a blacklisted screenwriter in the 1950s. He was... Uh, massively successful and then um, there was all sorts of uproar with communism being members of the communism party and uh, he was one of the, the screenwriters that was put on a blacklist um, it stars Brian Cranston who's Oscar nominated in his role he of uh, Breaking Bad fame and he's also for anyone that, that may also have seen it Malcolm in the Middle he plays Hal the dad brilliant um, so Trumbo in itself is it's a film about Hollywood in the 1950s, 1960s, and the the rigmaroles that uh, Don Trumbo and his merry men of fellow communists went through. Um, I think that the key thing is that um, it's a towerhouse performance by uh, Brian Cranston. He is the similar to The Martian in that the film lives and dies with its central performance. Trumbo is almost definitely that. It's uh, and and he is it's so so good as as that but um my my main problem with the film came from the fact that he's kind of the only well-rounded character as well um this you know it's filled with all sorts of different uh different dichotomies that aren't ever really resolved and i think that's a semblance of who the man was as well there's uh, a moment in the film which is brought up that um he he talks like a radical but he lives like a rich oh man. yeah that's louis ck's character says that and yeah yeah I, I will come to louis ck yeah but um but there is that and that's just it's never quite resolved and it, it's just one of those kind of slightly frustrating things of like well yeah so um but you know it's as, as a film as a whole relatively entertaining past the time it did bring up several films that i thought you know what i haven't seen that for a while i quite like to watch it that trembo actually wrote um and it, it you know the the whole lack of credit thing and all that. It shows him as a very industrious man, a very driven man, uh, and quite frankly, a very selfish man as well. And I think that as far as uh, a, a biography goes, it's very, very entertaining. Um, uh, you've already brought up the, the Louis C.K. character. Um, he plays, I'm not going to try and pronounce that. Um, You're going to try and get me to pronounce it. Arlen Heard? That looks like that looks right to me. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, um he plays Alan Hurd. Uh, he's uh, one of his, his merry men, and he he actually plays a really really sympathetic character. I think he he does really really well for a, a stand up comedian come actor. I think he's a, a really really solid performance. And Helen Mirren again in a, another underused role. 
Um, she plays Hedda Hopper. Um, she just seems like a side character that we could have done with a little bit more of. Yeah, she's like the, the very snide and actually quite dangerous gossip columnist, isn't she? She digs all the dirt on all the stars and they all have to circle around her for the benefit of their own careers. Yeah, what were your thoughts on the film? I liked it. I, I do agree with you. Any complexity that it has, it owes directly to Brian Cranston's character because he is spiky. He's not altogether likable, although you, you, you know, he is working for a noble cause and that he, you know, he defies the blacklist to put food on his family's table. This, of course, leads him to becoming increasingly alienated from his own family and that you know, plays to Brian Cranston's strengths if you think of him in Breaking Bad, which is what I know him for. Um, you weren't a Malcolm in the Middle fan? I didn't watch Malcolm in the Middle, I have to say. Oh, I'm you've got some treats ahead of you. Vaguely aware of it, yeah. Um, but it's it's like, you know, it, it's it, even when he's being repellent and not very nice, he's very, very compelling to watch. Mm. And I think that around him, it, it does play like a Cliff's Notes introduction to 1950s Hollywood. I'm sure you'd agree. It's a potted history. Yeah, I mean, it... it it's actually a world that I have a massive interest in. The golden age of Hollywood is mm. something that personally I, I just adore. And it was sort of it flicked at that a little bit, but didn't quite give you what you needed. It wasn't it wasn't a hearty meal, it was more of a crap starter. It's it's almost like it always does boil down on some points like, hang on, who is that actor playing there? Because they really look like their famous counterpart. Oh, it's someone playing Kirk Douglas. And it does become a bit like sort of spot the star at, at certain stages. Unfortunately, that's not Michael Douglas using his de-aged Ant-Man stuff, which would have been very, very cool. Well, that would have been creepy. That would have been awesome. And the guy that plays John Wayne as well, not not for me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's a funny thing, isn't it? Some sometimes the impersonations work, some don't. It's very hard for me to dislike any movie set during this period because, of course, it's going to be dressed up in all the glitz and the glamour and all the finery, all the chrome cars, you know, all the costumes. So there is a, it's, it is superficially entertaining in that sense. I just outside of Brian Cranston's performance, I don't think it's got any depth. I think the scenes between him and El Fanning playing his el- eldest daughter are very good. Yeah. Diane Lane, I think, was very underused as as his wife. Yeah, completely um, agree. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. Helen Mirren sort of wafts through it, not not doing very much, uh, and it is a shame. But I, I think I think Brian Cranston is very much the outsider in this year's Oscar race. I think precisely because the film around him isn't strong enough. Yeah, and I think it will be his time soon. Yeah, but it's it's not his time now. So um, that was Trumbo. Uh, sort of a solid recommendation if you've got a couple of hours. Yeah, if if you if you want to use it as a springboard onto actually examining that one of the most notorious periods in not in Hollywood history, but American history. If you're going to use that as a springboard to go and examine that, great. But just don't expect to take a lot from it. Or if you're going to use it as a springboard, some of the great films that Dalton Trumbo wrote. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Then we'll come on to that a little bit later. Yes. In the meantime, though. I'm a, I, I have to apologise for this. Um, it's going to be throwing the, the, the ball back to Sean. Um, so talk about a bigger splash. Thank you. <laughs> Through gritted teeth was that thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make a splash with this review then, shall I? So. Uh, more like a puddle. <laughs> oh, yeah, half evaporated puddle. Yeah, so this is um, this is the, uh, a sort of Italian... Um, uh, well, sort of British-Italian adaptation of the um, French film uh, La Piscine, which starred Alain Delon. Say that again. La Piscine. I'll have to bleep that out later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not referring to um, Life of Pi. Where is was it? Piscine Molitor Patel. I'm not referring to him. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so it's directed by Luca Guadagnino, who made I Am Love with Tilda Swinton, who's also in um, A Bigger Splash. So it's um, the story of uh, Tilda Swinton is a rocker who is recovering from a very recent throat surgery with her um, uh, documentary filmmaking lover um, boyfriend, played by Matthias Schoenetz, who we recently saw in the likes of uh, Far From Manning Crowd last year. Um, they are in this absolutely gorgeous Sicilian villa up on a, a cliff top. I mean, if this movie, if this movie is going to do anything, it's going to make you want to go on holiday. It's a very, very savvy um, piece of um, release timing on the part of the uh, distributors. So uh, yeah, it's and then what happens is that um, her former flame her ex-producer and former flame played by ray fines flies in and promptly turns their existence upside down he arrives with his younger daughter played by uh dakota johnson from 50 shades of gray and there's this scene is set for um a, a sort of broiling um domestic tensions all taking place in you know around the swimming pool in these you know very glamorous italian villa and it's funny i watched that piss scene last year and i actually found it very boring it was very very french very indulgent a lot of navel gazing a lot of people whinging about things they had really no reason to whinge about this is much more vibrant and snappy uh, largely thanks to ray fines performance which is really you know roaringly you know bawdy and loud and full bore and you know props to ray fines for completely reinventing his career with the likes of this and the grand budapest hotel i mean he, he really had he really could pursue an entire career as a comic actor now because he's really good at it Sort of like the Liam Neeson of comedy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And you think Ray Fiennes, you normally think quite controlled, introverted, repressed. And then this is completely the opposite of that. And he's really funny. Tilda Swinton, I think that the, the, the impact of the film owes a lot to Tilda Swinton because precisely because she doesn't talk very much in it. And apparently this was her decision as an actress. The character was going to talk, but then she decided to turn it the other way. She couldn't be bothered to learn lines. Well... No, <laughs> it's just that Tilda Swinton is a brilliantly physical actress and she does it all through gesture. And I think that that counterbalances Ray Fiennes' performance very, very well. Matthias Schoenertz and Dakota Johnson, to some extent, get the less interesting characters, although they are both you know, very effective. And that what happens is the story eventually takes a darker turn, as it does in La Piscine. And that um, what um, happens is the visual palette of the film changes and that it starts to take on a slightly more washed out darker hue early on you get lots of vibrant you know, greens oranges you know you feel the heat of the sicilian sunshine and as the story it, you know starts to expose all of these sexual desires and all of these unspoken arguments and all this various stuff going on things take a darker turn and the look of the film changes and very cleverly you start to see shabbier aspects of the island on which they're living uh, it also plays into the migrant crisis that's that's happened. Um, it obviously is continuing to happen in Europe at the moment, so that's that's very clever. So yeah, I think it's um, it's provocative, um, you know, no holds barred film, you know, full on with like you know sex, nudity, swearing, you know, lots of stuff going on. It also assimilates the the, the style of those films. There's lots of like sort of flash cuts and jagged edits and and things, which I suppose you could say harkens back to the era of of la piscine but yeah it's 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 good fun and it looks a treat and it's very well acted not least which by ray finds well where we get to see his penis as well yeah do you know apparently i was told this the other day um in red dragon when he has his nude scene mm -hmm. apparently they had to um digitally shrink him that's a claim to fame <laughs> i wonder who had the job of doing that which member of staff oh darling <laughs>
Don't, don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Moving swiftly away from Ray finds his penis. Um, we're going to talk about the post-apocalyptic drama, um, The Survivalist, uh, which basically has a cast of three characters. Um, it's directed and written by first-time director Stephen Fingleton. Um, it's a Northern Irish film, so I'm sure that you had a massive affiliation with the accent. Um, and so I did. Mm. Oh no, Brian Co. Right. Before you offend anyone else. Um, <laughs> so what the thing that impressed me most is basically the, the story of how a man has managed to survive this long um, in a post-apocalyptic world. It doesn't necessarily bother itself with exactly how this happened or why this happened, but the fact of the matter is it has happened. And uh, you then have a, a mother and daughter, or an old lady and a younger lady, um, coming to his door of his um, farm for one and trying to find somewhere to, to stay and some food. And I think it's a, a really intense power struggle between the three of them. Um, you you kind of... The, the, one of the best things about it for me is the fact that he didn't have any dialogue for 17 minutes. It was all literally just you watching him go about his daily routine. There were certain aspects in that time which I didn't quite get on with, such as the gratuitous nudity and the literal masturbatory uh, art of the uh, the frames. But um, <laughs> very very tactfully referred to. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I just it was one of those things yeah, I just yeah. didn't. Is that really necessary? Mm. Um, but as a whole, I thought it was a, a relatively entertaining. Um, actually, I take that word back. It's a it's a really well developed um, story of the the power struggle between the three people and whose whose side you're going to be on and and who has any power and just the whole idea of of how these three people are trying to survive together. It's quite intriguing that it's called the survivalist singular as opposed to plural. Um, just my take on it. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I liked it. I think it's derivative to an extent. It reminded me a lot of the road actually. The fact that you know, you know, the characters look very shabby, and that you, you know, it takes place in this very sort of dense wooded area, and that there is an undisclosed catastrophe that's happened off screen that you find pretty much nothing about, same as in the road. So I think, you know, I don't think it's particularly original. Um, I think Stephen Fingleton, who was nominated for the you know the best British um, debut at the Baftas, does a really good job of. Investing us in the situation again with very little dialogue, like you said, or very little context. Mm. Uh, I do think that yeah, there are times where it's clearly straining to be you know you know self consciously raw and gritty, maybe yeah, too much for its own good. And it's those moments that it doesn't quite work. But um, like I said, as a whole, I, I felt it. It was a very good study of the three, the, the power between the three people. Um, but there were singular moments in there that I didn't just quite get on with. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it quite resolves all of its grand ideas. the the op- The opening shot is the best thing, where you have the the two lines depicting the the rise of the human population and also the rise in oil consumption mm. and the way that the very the one line tails off, and yet also the population line also tail, tends to tail off as well. That that's probably the best shot in the in the whole movie, and that's really the only context that you get. Yeah, and yeah, I thought it was provocative and impressive. I think the the key thing to take away from this is Steve, Stephen Fingleton is definitely one to watch for the yeah. future. Um, he knows how to direct a film and he knows how to tell a story. Um, so moving towards the big argument of the week. <laughs> that should come with a Harry Hill style jingle. Big argument of the week. Who's Harry Hill? <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge that. Cool. Um, so... 
anyone that has listened to this podcast before will know very, very clearly that um, I am a comic fan. Are you? Sean is not. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to talk about a low blow? <laughs> it's really? <laughs> I have offered you Watchmen. I have offered you The Dark Knight Returns. These are two of the greatest books ever published. Well, I, let re- alone. I read The Joker. I read The Killing Joke. Yeah, that's about... 60 pages long <laughs> I like comic book films anyway I don't want to interrupt you so um, Deadpool has been released this week um, it is the the story that has been brought to the screen by Ryan Reynolds he played the character once before in uh, the Wolverine Origins uh, yeah X-Men Boo. Origins terrible yeah um, the, the so called Merc with a mouth and what do they do in that film So his mouth up perfectly and Perfect. give him arm blades yeah great so um so this is his, his chance to do the character right. Directed by uh, first-time director Tim Miller, and um, it, it, it. I just, I just want to say he did the opening title sequence on the remake of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Just wanted to throw that out there. He also did one of the greatest um, adverts for uh, a Batman game that you'll ever see. Um, he, he basically tells the story. I'm not going to go into it too much, but he basically tells the story of Bruce Wayne's life whilst having a solo shot of a young Bruce Wayne moving older. Um, uh-huh. Check it out online. It's it's fantastic. It's better than some of the actual big screen Batman films um, <laughs> in about two minutes. A brilliant, brilliant advert. But um, so we now have Deadpool. Uh, we start the film with some absolutely wonderful title sequence, and then we move into a um, an action sequence. And from there we go to a flashback. Uh, the plot in itself is basically guy gets an illness, tries to get it fixed, doesn't quite go to planned, now has to track down the guy that did it. And this is exactly what you need. You were talking about things like Zoolander, you were talking about Dad's Army, you were talking even about Pride, Prejudice and Zombies. They don't let the characters breathe. They don't let the characters be the characters. Whereas Deadpool does. Deadpool really, really wants the main character to fill the screen. And the crux of whether you will like the film or not is how much you get on with that character. The character in himself. He's childish. He's sweary. He basically doesn't care who he offends. And he's very, very meta. So if you like these these ideas, then you're going to like the film. I think I come down a slightly more positive way of it than you do, Sean. Well, on the basis of that criteria, I'm presenting with Deadpool, aren't I? I don't know, quite know how to respond to that. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's neither an insult nor a compliment. <laughs> well, whilst you're deciding, yeah, let me fill in. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't hate it. I think you, I think you think I dislike it um, a lot more than I do. Probably because you tell me that you do, just to wind me yeah, up. Yeah, just to wind you up, and it's very easy to do that because I know that you are a comic book fan. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I think Ryan Reynolds, to some extent, does right the wrongs of X-Men Origins Wolverine. I think that, any superhero movie that at least attempts to bust through that slightly self-important fabric of superhero movies that we've got in the modern age is to be admired. I like the fact that it tears at the rule book, that it is rude and it's riotous and it breaks the fourth wall and that it clearly it's not it's not involved in any way to do with angst or, you know, soul searching or anything like that. I think, you know, that is that is to be admired. I think that my problem with the movie is the way that it's executed. It's so endlessly self-referential that, for me, the movie almost negates itself and I don't actually care what's going on. It's like the movie is chasing its own tail. But it doesn't uh, want you to care. The, 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 the whole movie doesn't point, want you to care. The whole point is that it doesn't want you to care about what's happening. So why am I watching it, then? Because it's funny. Well, bits of it are funny. Oh, the joke... The, it's literally almost relentless in its joke after joke after joke. Yeah, exactly. And... 
admittedly, it's not a hundred percent hit rate. No. However, in terms, I'm sh- it's funnier than most comedies. It's funnier than most comedies recently. I'll give you that. Let's face it; it's funnier than Dirty Grandpa. Although that's damning with faint praise. I mean, that's a low shot. Actually, I regret saying that as soon as it came out of my mouth. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm not the biggest fan of Deadpool, but even I, even it doesn't deserve that sort of comparison. <laughs> okay, it's just, I just think that you know, it almost became quite snide. I was like, right, okay, so you're constantly referring back to you know the very fabric on which the film is based. Okay, I get it, I get it. But the, the problem from also, the bigger problem with for the, with me with the movie was that it's not half as subversive as it thinks it is because it's, it's constantly telling you, um, okay, we're not going to play this out as a standard superhero movie. And it plays out as a standard superhero movie. You get all of the elements. It doesn't, you, and I'm not going to... Yeah quite explain how because that's final well, can act I, stuff can I sort of generally explain well no you go first no, that's final act stuff but there's a it's there not is, just final act there is a very key moment that um, one character tells another character to not do something and he does it and that is so against the whole idea of superheroes and that's that's exactly what Deadpool is he's not a hero he is just someone that's clearly just doing something for money. I, I, yeah. He's not a hero, and that's the key thing of it. That, and that's why it's subversive. And I think there's a lot that's been said in the media, especially by James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, who's taken against the the idea that um, a lot of people have said that this is the first superhero to be truly funny. People forget how funny Iron Man is. People forget how funny Guardians of the Galaxy is. But Deadpool is more an out-and-out comedy than any superhero film we've seen. And... It references that fact. Yeah, well, it, it's it's flippant and irrelevant. Uh, irreverent, sorry, not irrelevant. Irreverent, I should say. Um, but the, the thing is, when you line up the structure of it, it is an origin story. You find out how he became the superhero. He's got the love interest. He's got the sidekick. There is the inevitable ball-busting showdown with the villains. All of these elements are tipped off. But they're the, referenced the, at the time. They, they are brought up and they're brought to your attention. Yeah, I mean, look, bringing it, look at what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, bringing it to the attention is fine. But, you know, I think there could have been more more edge in the way that, you know, it could have further subverted that that general sense of it. And I do think so, some of the jokes are very funny. I think that there's a moment where he, he breaks the fourth wall within a flashback. He says, is this a 16 waller? That was funny. That's a very good joke. Um, I, I, I know you disagree with me on this. I think the best performance is in it. Although Ryan Reynolds, you know, is clearly, you know, his energy is what helps paper over what I perceive as a lot of the cracks uh, in the movie. He's born for this role. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is a passion project of his, clearly. I mean, the fact that X-Men Origins Wolverine went horribly wrong meant he's clearly been pursuing this for quite a long time. He is it's, Deadpool, yeah. let's be honest. I thought the best performances in it were T.J. Miller as his best mate Weasel, with whom he exchanges just some hilariously filthy insults that we can't you can't reveal here. I wanted uh, that to go on for slightly longer, though. Yeah, I well, wanted, apparently it did. I wanted that to be like a. Um, do you remember in Knocked Up when they sat around saying, "You know what? You know how I know you're, you're gay." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted that to yeah. be that kind of length. Yeah, well, apparently that they, they, they a lot of insults didn't make it into the movie because they were so outrageously offensive, um, even more offensive than what made it into the final cut. But those scenes were great, and also the scenes with. Leslie Uggams as Blind Al, who apparently is a character from the comics, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. But in this, she's she's older. They they've pitched her as a, as a much older person. Those scenes are very very funny, and frankly, I'd quite happily see a spin off with those two in it. I think Ryan Reynolds. But you need is, Deadpool. Yeah, you need Deadpool to centralise yeah. these two people. And I, I think my problem is that Deadpool as a character for me wore out his welcome ultimately, and I think the nature of the film for me wore out its welcome. I don't think it's quite as clever as, as it thinks it is and the whole thing about 
you know, there's a reference to Charles Xavier. Which one is it, McAvoy or Stewart? I was like, oh, come on. You know, the movie can't quite decide how to pitch itself. It's like, okay, are you referring to fictional things or are you referring to things outside in, in the real world which fictional characters wouldn't be aware of? It's like, it did, it did frustrate me slightly. I, I, that joke in particular, I loved. That's clearly a joke for the fans. But um, <laughs> but again, I, just in terms of a sheer hit rate, it's just such a quotable film. And I think that the more you see it, the more the quotes are going to stick. And I just can't wait to see it and begin to quote it. The credit um, sequence at the beginning made me laugh with like an overpaid tool in, in place of director. That was good. Did you stay for the, uh, the post-credits? Yes, thing? I did. Yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts? Well, I, I can't really describe it, can I? Um, well, without... But- doing it good or not not really i mean it's not it's not worth going all the way through those credits just for that oh um, it was it really for for a what was spoken about and b the way in which it was spoken well i'd I'd rather have just watched the film that it was referencing really it was sort of it was like i designed the post-credit sequence and put it on the screen just for myself so as a comic fan and a fan of what was referenced i adored that absolutely and again what was being announced was it means absolutely nothing to you but to me i I knew what i knew what they're referring to but i just i just don't think everyone had said oh wow there's this massive great big revelatory thing at the end i was like is that it you know it's just uh, but again the impact of what that means and (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think we disagree on this one I think we do, but only slightly. Like mm. Again, I, I have said that it's not a 100% hit rate for its jokes. There's a lot of time where it's a little bit, mm, all right, move on to the next thing now, um, which it does. But um, I mean, one thing also that I was a bit disappointed by is the way it sets up uh, Morena Bakarin uh, as, as, as his love interest. And initially, she gives as good as she gets. And then in the end, she is ultimately reduced to just being the love interest in peril, which I was disappointed yeah, at i i agree with you on that that again would encapsulate for me why the movie isn't quite as bold and as brave it doesn't have the courage of its convictions as much as it perhaps should do but knowing something that i do know about that character hopefully she returns in a bit more of a ball busting way in the next one mm-hmm. if there is a next one oh god there's going to be a next one well you actually have you heard the writers uh, despite this one's enormous success they actually want the next one to be low budget i don't think that's going to happen well no, you- it's sort of like the whole dogma principle, isn't it? Deliberately hamper yourself and then you'll be slightly more creative. Yeah. So, um, also, this could well see a change of the, the comic book movie. It could well t- see, right, there is an R-rated audience out there as well. But just in terms of, of casting, one of the key things of Deadpool is Ryan Reynolds. And it's as good a casting as Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man, as far as I'm concerned. But I think that there's, there's an elephant in the corner here for me, which is that Kick-Ass did lot of this stuff six years ago and I think the first Kick-Ass is a brilliant film and I think what that was able to do was that it was a deconstruction of the genre and it was a celebration of it That's uh, at the same time that's a really hard balance to get right to be inside the joke and outside the joke at the same time it did it brilliantly when I left the cinema I was asked what my thought was and I the first thing I said was it's very good but it's not as good as Kick-Ass yes so I think we're, we are on the same coin at least. Yeah, and and you know, the Kickass proves that the whole concept of the R-rated superhero movie, you know, that's nothing particularly revolutionary. You know, that idea has been around before. Maybe it's not been to its fullest extent, but it has been around. True, but the, the way Kickass was made was very different. As yeah, I'm independently sure you know. financed. They, yeah, they yeah. made it yeah, and then yeah. shipped it to a studio, whereas this is a studio film. Yeah. So, um, 
there's talk of uh, an R-rated Deadpool movie, uh, R-rated Wolverine movie. Mm-hmm. So we we live in hope for that because that is a character that I'd love to see R-rated. Um, but as a whole, solid, solid thumbs up. And I think that's a two thumbs up. I'll give it a three out of five. Well, I meant a two people thumbs up. Oh, I see. There's well, two of us here, Sean. Oh, I can't count. Sorry. Can I give it a Roger Ebert waving thumb? Well, no, because he does that. You can't not just steal any- things off other critics. Well, not anymore. How harsh. <laughs> how how poor taste, Sean. <laughs> You're the one who brought it up. No, I didn't. <laughs> it's, you use the present tense anyway. <laughs> anyway, solid, solid thumbs up from uh, for Deadpool. For any regular listeners to this podcast, Sean is uh, privy to a soundtrack or two. Um, so this week he has had something on constant rotation. Sean, what has it been? It is uh, The School for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies by Fernando Velasquez. Ah, yes. He of the impossible and the orphanage fame. Yeah, thank God for those crib sheets that I gave you, hey? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually, the score for this film was actually probably one of its very few redeeming features besides uh, some of the the performances. Um, Yeah, Velasquez has come out of Spain in the last few years. Actually, there's a um, a great many... um, film school composers are increasingly coming out of Spain and I think there must be something about the nature of of Spanish horror cinema I think with its very gothic very opulent styling Uh, I mean you think of something like Javier Navarrete who wrote the school for Pan's Labyrinth Um, there's something I think there's a very very rich um, classical tradition in Spain and this feeds over into a lot of um, composers works and Velasquez did a you know, heartrendingly emotional scores. Uh, yeah, as, for the, the aforementioned films, as you mentioned, I think the score for The Impossible was very moving. That's because I knew who the composer was. There you go. Thanks to me. No comment. <laughs> no comment. Uh, yeah, and I think that what what he's able to do with this score is that he, um, it, the, the, the genre shifts of, of the movie, although it, the genre shifts don't work as a film, uh, although you know, it lurches between being on the one hand and an Austin adaptation, on, on the other hand, a zombie film. What it provides Velasquez the opportunity to do is to create a really intriguing, you know, mash musical mashup. So you have um, very, very burgeoning orchestral romance for Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy, interspersed with each of these full-on, you know, gothic you know, trombone blasts as as the zombie hordes you know, sweep across the landscape. And I think that you know, the shift as heard in the music is more interesting than watching it actually take place in in the movie. And I think it's actually a, a very accomplished score for the way that at one point it's very sweet and saccharine and the next minute it's actually quite dark and threatening. Um, and clearly this is pro- presumably the sort of material that composers, you know, long to score because there are all these contradictions in it. There's all this sort of stuff going on. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, um, I thought, you know, although the film didn't work i thought the score was was actually one of its strongest aspects almost certainly excellent and the name of the composer again fernando velasquez excellent and that is for his score for pride prejudice and zombies um for anyone that is already listening to this podcast i would hope that you would know this however you can always contact us on twitter using at culture mirrors you can like our facebook page on culture mirrors and you can go on the website on culturemirrors.com um, if you want a question read out or if you'd like to, to ask us anything, then feel free to do so. Just drop us an email at andy at If you want to follow either of us on Twitter independently, because we uh, inevitably tweet uh, very different things from time to time, I'm Andy Williams 250 You are? At Shawno22. 
excellent so you can always uh, manage to find us there uh when we discuss some of the films we do like to talk about a, a nice classic film um we mentioned this briefly earlier in the trembo review um this is something that i particularly wanted to talk about because it was one of those films that i watched trembo and i thought right you know what i really really want to watch this i've not seen this in years it was roman holiday so it was the uh, the Audrey Hepburn debut or feature film debut for which she won an Oscar, uh, also starring Gregory Peck, directed by William Wyler. Um, it tells the story of a young princess of an unnamed country and how she manages to take some time off and uh, go around the, the city of Rome. And the journalist that she meets, Gregory Peck's character, um, trying to use uh, her statutory as a princess to his own financial gain. Um, just such a fantastic film. I was watching it thinking, it, sound, it makes me sound really, really old. They don't make them like this anymore. This, do you, do you see what I mean? This is an yeah, Oscar-winning, an Oscar-winning piece of froth, basically. And it's just fun. It's enjoyable, and it's just such a fantastic film. So, if anyone hasn't seen it that is listening to the podcast, what are you doing? Go and watch Roman Holiday. Yeah, it's got class oozing from every pore. I think it's probably one of those films that actually helped solidify that romantic image of Rome in many people's heads, actually, didn't it? Along with La Dolce Vita and, and things, yeah. And, you know, Gregory Peck playing a comedy role, which is not something that he did particularly often. Yeah. Um, it, it's very nice to see because he, he handles that very, very capably. And like you said to me, he said that Cary Grant's fingerprints were all over the script. Yes, yes. So how he manages to differentiate himself from a, a Cary Grant character is is very, very good. And it's just such a wonderful film. I mean, one other tiny little story about the film is that um, after the, the filming, uh, Gregory Peck went to the producers and said, you know what, you should put Audrey Hepburn's name above the title because she's going to win an Oscar for this performance. He was right. Yeah. Good on you, Gregory. Well done, Gregory. Um, yeah. Just massive massive bucket of win for this film it's a huge huge film and just go and watch it if you haven't seen it go and watch it. it is just fun you will not spend two hours better in a week i promise you so we also like to talk on this podcast about some of the tv moments um this week for anybody that is engaged in this sort of thing the walking dead returned um it's been it's halfway through its sixth series and this is the the return after christmas so the first episode back takes the the name of one of the classic books called no way back it is it the last episode ended very much on a cliffhanger where um rick and the main characters were walking out of the the front door through a herd of zombies and they were covered in, in zombie blankets and it was then a case of right for someone that's read the books are they going to do what the books do and without spoiling anything they do what the books do which is amazing the way that it genuinely the way that, that greg nicotero directed this episode it's relentless it's action beat after action beat after action beat and every character gets something that is really really cool um there's a slight bit of slightly hammy dialogue um involving glenn um but other than that it was just such a great episode um it's a, it, it is actually a really really good jumping on point as well for anyone that hasn't seen the show thus far um it serves as a, a fantastic way of going you know what these are the characters and this is what they do. And we get to see the return of the absolutely best side of main character, Rick. So, um, as always, Andrew Lincoln playing a fantastic performance. And we just wait for the next episode now. It's absolutely wonderful. Welcome back, Walking Dead. One of the other shows that we watch on this show, but uh, one of us has sadly not uh, caught up with it, is Better Call Saul. 
Um, this is the prequel, sequel, spin-off, something to Breaking Bad, um, with Saul Goodman, the lawyer, the slightly slimy lawyer in Breaking Bad, of Walter White. Um, he, it, we see him before he becomes the Saul Goodman character um, as Jimmy McGill. He has now come back for a second series um, where he is basically... It's, it's trying to reconcile his relationships a little bit more with uh, his the lady Kim that's in, in the episode, and she is, is very much the driving force behind this first episode. There's a lot of symmetry between the first episode of this and the first episode of the series as a whole, which um, is, is obviously something that the uh, the creators care deeply about, as well as the fact that we get to see... We almost see Slip and Jimmy come back a little bit, which uh, which Kim seems to enjoy very, very much, but at the same time... For any Breaking Bad fans out there, there is a very, very, a fantastically niche reference to Breaking Bad in both the character that they they are talking to and the drink that they consume. It's it, it's very much one for the fans, but at the same time, there are all sorts of different relationship dynamics that change very, very much throughout this episode. And this is effectively what the show has become, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's slight relationship dynamics changing week by week and how Jimmy McGill fits into this, and how he will probably on the way become eventually Saul Goodman. Um, So that is Better Call Saul. Sean has very often trailed the return of the X-Files using this podcast. Um, He talked about trailers, he talked about teasers, he talked about images that came online. Now two episodes have been out on uh, Channel 5 over here, isn't it? Yeah, Channel 5, yeah. Um, I'm assuming you've seen them. Yes, I have, first two episodes. What were your thoughts? Um... It's a mixed response. I think that, you know, there's a lot of mythology in the X-Files. And for me, the mythology was always the most convoluted and in many ways the least interesting part of it. I always liked the standalone Monster of the Week episodes, as they were called. Um, And we are due to get one of those with um, a a creature called um, the Band-Aid Nose Man, who's coming uh, very, very soon. I think that... well. the opening episode called My Struggles sort of seemed to encapsulate the um, the problems that there's a lot of history to pack into 45 minutes. There's a lot of backstory. And I get the feeling there's a tension between that backstory and the need to craft individual standalone pieces as well. Because this most recent episode that was on this week, which I believe was called, was it Babylon? Believe this episode, this week's episode, whatever, sure. whatever the name. Of this look week, at the names. Yeah, whatever the name of this week's episode was, it started off looking like it was going to be like um, a, a sort of monster of the week. Wasn't it like Bruce Freeman's Bruce. mutation? Oh yes, yeah, mutation, yeah, yeah, something but, mutation, yeah, mutation, the, yeah, the one that's mentioned in it, the, yeah, the founder's episode. mutation, founder's mutation, yeah, thank you. Um, it started off looking like it was going to be one thing, and then all of a sudden it seemed to take a, 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 a swerve, and it actually became about the history of Mulder and Scully, which I actually found more compelling than the actual the mystery that started everything off, actually. So there is that slight friction between the complex the, the the complexity of of the franchise and you know the need to create pulpy thrills with it. Yeah, I, I almost but, completely agree with you. But the fact that there's t- the two episodes taking them apart separately, the first episode for me, as you mentioned, it it is very very fast paced and is very much trying to cram a lot in. And for me, that worked. There was one moment where I thought, you know what. They sat around explaining the plot to each other, and that was about half an hour. Forty. That's very X Filesy. That, yeah. Just sit around, talk about stuff, and create a conspiracy in and of itself. And also the fact that Joe McH- Joel McHale was in it. He is famous for being Jeff Winger in Community. Uh-huh. Um, it genuinely looked like he'd just left Community College and walked into an X Files episode. <laughs> Brilliant. But um, 
And the second episode as well didn't quite hang up as well as the first for me. I know you mentioned about it being uh, about the history of Mulder and Scully a little bit more, but um, it, it just didn't quite... It didn't have the zip and pizzazz and the sharpness of script that the first one had. Yeah, I, I, like, I, I agree. I, I like the fact that it filled in their history and that their, their chemistry, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, their chemistry is what famously drove the original X-Files series. And when David Duchovny dropped out towards the later series, it did tend to go down in quality so they are they are the backbone that props everything up i think that it's generally acknowledged that chris carter who created the x-files isn't the best person at crafting scripts for the individual episodes there is one the next one coming up in in the uk because mm. i believe these have already screened in the us it's, it's scripted by darren morgan who wrote a lot of the comedy episodes in the X-Files. From what I've heard, this episode three is going to be a great episode. Yeah, and I think it sounds like it's probably the best one of the entire run. And the X-Files was always really, really good when it was being self-aware and funny. And he only wrote a smattering of episodes for it. He wrote the um, Freak Show Humbug episode in season two, which is one of the best ones out of the whole of the X-Files history. Really good. I recommend you check that one out. Is it on that list that you sent me of X Files? Yeah, the I'll one get that, to it the, the one that was out of order. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that really annoyed me because yeah, yeah. what yeah. was what was listed as one of the greatest episodes of the show had its twist at the end ruined for me because I'd already <laughs> watched the second episode in that story. See, I was expecting you to already have the knowledge, and I was expecting you to pick on up on that. How would I? You let me know. You let me down. Well, I you, no. You think I came to you as a complete novice and said, <laughs> "Where shall I go first? And you said, "Go to this episode, episode eighteen of series one." Okay. I, actually, I didn't. I gave you a little. I, I didn't actually say. It. I gave you a list of episodes. Yeah, because if you said episode, if you'd yeah. said episode eighteen, yeah. and then t- threw me towards I, episode two, I, then I'd have gone. You know what? I'm going to watch episode. I'm, two I'm very first. sorry that the, the tombs moment that I automatically think of is the moment where they actually have to hunt him down and, it's and not. destroy him. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sorry about that. I thought I was talking to. Um, I thought I was preaching to the choir. Obviously not. Well, no. All you've done is ruin my enthusiasm for the the old episodes of the X Files. All of them. All. Now I'll catch up with them at some point. Yeah, yeah. Watch Humbug, it's brilliant. I'll get there. If yeah. it's on the list, I'll get there. Yep. So one of the other shows that started this week on, it's been airing on BBC Two actually, is uh, an import from uh, the Fox Network. Uh, it's an American crime story, uh, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. We've got Cuba Gooding Jr. playing the accused titular O.J. Simpson, and we have Sarah Paulson playing the... Um, the district attorney trying to bring him to justice. Um, obviously, it's a very famous case. The idea of the series is that it's going to be an anthology series, which seems to be the trends nowadays, such as Fargo, such as True Detective, such as American Horror Story. See what they've done there? American, I do. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Same director as uh, the first episodes, actually. But um, just, I'm sure most people will know the actual overall story, but um, the 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 nitty-gritties of the individual episodes, uh, individual parts of the story, may not necessarily be as well-known. Um, first episode, very strong start. Uh, intrigued to see where it goes next. David Schwimmer puts a standout performance as Kim Kardashian's dad. And um, he's he's actually genuinely really good. I'm being flippant, but he is actually really good. And um, I think that when Cuba Gooding Jr. is on screen, he is a presence to behold. He's He plays OJ fantastically well. Um, so after the this end ep- end of the first episode now has uh, left on a bit of a cliffhanger. It's still available on on your iPlayer, so definitely check that one out. Now we are going to do Sean's favourite thing of whoring ourselves out. 
So if they want to check out any of uh, Sean's other work, Sean, where can they find you? Well, whoring myself out, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Get it right. Uh, yes, yeah, so, well, where do I begin? Um, I uh, where, where would you like me to begin? Wherever you're most readily available. <laughs> I'm readily available everywhere. Uh, yeah, I, That's uh, what they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've been doing uh, um, podcasting with Tony Black for Black Hole Cinema. You can find them on Twitter and on Acast. Been doing uh, a series called The Composers, uh, each exploring a particular soundtrack composer. This week, it's Jerry Goldsmith, and I'm really excited about that because he's my favourite film composer ever. Didn't we do that on this podcast? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we've actually nicked the idea. So now you're actually just, yeah, just stealing, reusing stealing. the same yeah, yeah, exactly. material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can listen to, to Sean's thoughts on Jerry Goldsmith on one of our previous podcasts. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I should probably uh, dig out which episode number that is. Yeah, I? exactly. Really should. Yeah, get on that. Um, so yeah, check us, check them out on uh, Black Hole Cinema on Twitter and on Acast. Uh, I also write for Den of Geek and Flickering Myth. Um, I've I've done uh, articles about the twenty five most underrated scores of the eighties and nineties, and also the underrated scores of the two thousands will be coming up. Uh, What's yes. your number one for the two thousands then? Uh, do you want me to do you want me to actually say? If you don't mind ruining your article, then go ahead. Um, well, I'll, all right, I will say um, it's actually The Cooler by Mark, Mark Isham as jazz score. Have you seen The Cooler? No. It's a film with William H. Macy, Maria Bello and Alec Baldwin in it about um, a guy in a casino who's put there because he's a bad luck charm. He turns gamblers' um, luck the wrong way, seemingly. But then Lady Luck goes onto his side and he falls in love and his, luck, his own luck goes on the up. And Alec Baldwin, who's the mob boss who runs the casino, doesn't like this at all, and various things happen. Well, I was half in when you said Alec Baldwin, and then I, yeah. and then I was all in when you said William H. Macy. So yeah. And the score by Mark Isham is an absolute sexy, stylish knockout, and I don't think it gets half the attention it deserves. Not quite sure about how I feel about you saying sexy. But... Sexy? Mm. What's sexy? Yeah, no. Well, don't, don't refer to me as that. That's even weirder. <laughs> What's sexy? Odd. <laughs> yeah so you can check check out those you can also check out my soundtrack uh reviews on mfiles.co.uk so yeah i'm everywhere and m- more importantly i am on cultural mirrors with yeah. you well i am the loyalist if you want to check out any of my work it's available on culturalmirrors.com um there's a fantastic essay on there about how kevin smith is an outer if you can in fact de- decipher what an outer actually is um Did you just big up your own essay yeah okay fair enough yeah. It's available on the website. <laughs> it is a fantastic essay. <laughs> it was one I wrote in university and got a first for, so there we go. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's not even my dissertation. Oh, that might go up in chapters every now and then, you never know. <laughs> yeah, rub it in. <laughs> well, and if if you want to see any of my other uh, writings that are on there, you can on culturemirrors.com. Um, if there's anything, like I said earlier on, that uh, you'd like to, to ask us or anything we can do to help, uh, just give us a uh, an email um, com, or you can just message us on the Facebook page or hit us up via Twitter at Cultural Mirrors so that will do us for the Cultural Mirrors podcast for this week I'm Andy Williams I'm Sean Wilson and we're off to go and have a look for Voldemort's nose and in fact penis thanks so much <laughs>